Stay tuned for background briefing. Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We begin with the hijacking of a passenger plane flying between two EU countries by the dictator of Belarus to capture a dissident journalist and speak with an expert on Belarus, David Marples, the Distinguished University Professor in the Department of History at the University of Alberta, who currently serves as the President of the North American Association of Belarusian Studies and is the author of Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. He joins us to discuss the brazen actions of Lukashenko, the Stalinist thug who lost the last election, then ramped up repression to the point any and all opposition is either abroad or in jail, where they are beaten and tortured, or in the case of the journalist who was the target of the hijacking of a civilian airliner, faced the prospect of the death penalty. With outrage expressed by European governments who are now avoiding Belarusian airspace and Ukraine banning Belarusian aircraft from flying over its territory, we will assess what kind of sanctions will be placed on Lukashenko and what they are likely to achieve. Then we'll examine political change underway in Brazil with the former leader of the country, Lula, now polling ahead of President Bolsonaro by 55% to 32% and speak with James Green, Professor of Modern Latin American History and Brazilian Studies, as well as the past president of the Brazil Studies Association. He joins us to discuss the likelihood that the disastrous rule of Bolsonaro will end after elections next year, unless Bolsonaro's friends in the military try to keep him in power. Then finally we'll speak with the philosopher and author Shreshko Horvat, the author of Poetry for the Future, Welcome to the Desert of Post-Socialism and the Radicality of Love about his latest book, After the Apocalypse. We will discuss how since progress and catastrophe are two sides of the same coin, the combination of the climate crisis and nuclear risks present humanity with a choice between radical reinvention of the world or its destruction. And joining us now, David Marples, a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, who currently serves as president of the North American Association of Belarusian Studies. He's the author of The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections, Propaganda and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and his latest book is Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Marples. Thank you very much. Well, thanks for joining us. And the dictator, or referred to as Europe's last dictator, Lukashenko, has really done something extraordinarily brazen. He ordered a plane flying from Greece to Lithuania. Just it was almost out of Belarusian airspace. He set up a fighter jet to intercept it, force it to land, in order to arrest one journalist, an opposition activist, Roman so, and his girlfriend, by the way. Now, he faces a death sentence, I understand, and he's already been on television in this Stalinist way where he's confessed to crimes and said he's being well-treated. So, this is such a throwback, literally, not even to the Soviet Union, but to the days of St Joseph Stalin. What are the Europeans going to do about this, do you think? Well, I think the reaction will be fairly strong um, insofar as they can actually do 
anything to damage this regime. Um, in other words, they will perhaps, I would say perhaps, they would almost certainly suspend um, investment into Belarus, close airline routes, ban the Belarusian airline Belavia from landing in, in different cities of the European Union. And I understand that uh, the UK, which is of course now outside the European Union, has already done that. And I think there may be similar repercussions at the diplomatic level that is sending uh, diplomats either for discussions with the authorities or to remove them altogether for certain time periods um, and more sanctions. And the EU has debated sanctions for quite a long time and imposed some. I mean, Lukashenko himself and his son and most of his leadership are banned. Their assets have been frozen in Europe before this even happened. So this now may be seen by some of them as the last straw. And I think from what I've heard over the last few hours is that it's not simply the countries on the edge of the EU, um, in, in other words, the eastern border, like Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, that are doing the complaining. But even countries like Germany have made a very strong statement about, about this event. And, um, you know, I watched the interview just before you phoned. I watched the interview on Nectar Channel with, um, with Roman Protasevich. And he looks, first of all, he looks like he's been beaten. And second, he looks absolutely terrified. Um, his hands are shaking. He looks in a state of shock. Uh, you were right in what you said at the very beginning, that this is an extreme example of state terror against a single individual. Well, that's what raises a question about whether this strong man is weak. I mean, we had a weak strong man here in the presidency of Donald Trump, but of course he never had the power. I'm sure he wished he had the power, the dictatorial power that Lukashenko has. But there's got to be weakness in the regime that they put such a high priority on nabbing this 26-year-old opposition activist who had to do this forced confession. So is Lukashenko afraid? I mean, it's almost like the whole country's against him and he's just ramping up the mechanisms for repression. Now, maybe they're sufficient to keep him in power. Is that the sad truth? I mean, you have examples of repression can keep terrible regimes in power, as we've witnessed in Zimbabwe for decades and in um, Venezuela, etc. So can he ride this out and ride out the international ostracization? Well, I don't think he could, he could have survived this long if it wasn't for the fact that he was backed uh, very strongly by Vladimir Putin and Russia. And Russia has provided loans to Belarus in the past. He's provided one recently. But the meetings between the two of them, the two presidents, Lukashenko and Putin, in recent months have shown that now the foreign policies of the two countries are closely coordinated and the propaganda that's emanating from social media um, is now identical between Russia and Belarus. There are no differences. In fact, the main journalists operating on Belarusian television have been imported from Russia. All the local ones resigned after the elections last year, so it's coming directly uh, from the Moscow feed what Belarusians are, are hearing. And one of the suppositions about today's events 
um, which I cannot confirm, unfortunately, are that um, there's an indication that this operation was planned well in advance, and that it may have been it may have been planned by the Russian security services together with the Belarusian KGB. And if if that's happened, it would not be the first um, sort of collaboration like this in in the recent period. The two of them collaborated on a, a so-called assassination attempt on Lukashenko a few weeks ago, uh, that for which several people were arrested, including the head of the Popular Front and uh, someone who used to work for Lukashenko's campaign. Uh, obviously, you know, to westernize a fabricated event. And this one seems to me it would be a very brave act for Lukashenko to take on the Europeans in this way, um, unless he had firm backing from Russia or unless the whole thing was organized in collaboration with Russia. Because this event now, as you suggest, it makes Lukashenko look weak, but it also pushes him further into the Russian orbit. Once the European Union is completely cut off from, from Lukashenko, and Ukraine also is, is very close to severing relations completely, that only leaves Russia. And that means that Russia takes over once more, um, much more of Belarusian foreign policy and even Belarusian internal policy. And that, I fear, is where Lukashenko's gone now. To stay in power, he's basically sold his soul to the devil. And, of course, Russian propaganda is now accusing the West of hypocrisy because there was a plane carrying the uh, former president of Bolivia, Evo Morales, that was forced to land in Vienna uh, because they thought uh, Edward Snowden was aboard it. So, But there were apparently on this plane... Uh, which is now has arrived in Vilnius, but apparently about three KGB people were aboard. Mm -hmm. They know that because when when the plane was allowed to leave, there were th three less passengers. So, so right. you, the point that you made, of course, is quite likely that that's what's going on. And I understand that Lukashenko, when he recently went to Moscow, caved in to Putin's pressure and is now allowing the Russians to operate from a big air base, aren't they, in, in Belarus? Yeah, I mean, there have been military cooperation for some time, but Lukashenko had kept a distance from Russia until the elections of last year, and he'd allowed himself this middle route to play the Europeans off against the Russians, and in this way to increase his own independence. And he'd done that for some years quite successfully, and I'm not suggesting there's any sort of benevolent side to this at all, because I think it's just a, a way to stay in power. And in doing so, he also came up with a sort of very light form of Belarusian nationalism. That is, he would sort of emphasize the independence of Belarus from, from Russia. That has all ended now, I think, and we're seeing a different phase in Lukashenko, I think it's the last phase, to be honest, of his presidency, um, for economic reasons as much as political ones, because I think economically Belarus cannot survive in its current form um, without European trade, European assistance, and dramatic reforms of the economy. And what has been the route chosen is to go with Russia, but to allow Russia more and more leeway uh, in terms of things like air bases, military cooperation, 
And keep in mind, there are already Russian, two Russian military bases in Belarus that have been there since the Soviet period, and they've continued to operate. So this will be a third one if an air base is opened as well. So it's a gradual form of integration forced by Moscow, which also has tried to form political parties in Belarus that are pro-Russian. And Lukashenko has resisted them bitterly um, over the past few months. And instead, he's tried to create his own route um, to enhance his power, to stay in power, through some kind of people's assembly. Um, and recently, he refused permission for the largest of the pro-Russian parties to be registered in Belarus. So he made one last act of defiance, if you like, before these current events. But I think he's under pressure because the as you say, he's isolated. He's only got the security forces around him. And these security forces um, are not necessarily loyal to Lukashenko. They just simply realize that if they abandon him, they're likely to face um, legal action, justice at the, at the hands of the people who've been suffering all this time for the past nine months now since the election. So well, I think... a long answer. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Well, I thank you very much for joining us here today, David Merples. Yeah, my pleasure, Ian, as always. And again, I've been speaking with David Marples, who's a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, and he currently serves as president of the North American Association of Belarusian Studies, and he's the author of The Lukashenko Phenomenon, Elections, Propaganda, and the Foundations of Political Authority in Belarus, Prospects for Democracy in Belarus, and his latest book is Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining political changes underway in Brazil where the former leader of the country, Lula, is now polling ahead of President Bolsonaro by 55 to 32%. Tell me that you'll wait for me Hold me like you'll never let me go Welcome back, I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is James Green, the Carlos Manuel de Cispedes Professor of Modern Latin American History and Portuguese and Brazilian Studies, as well as the past president of the Brazil Studies Association, and he has travelled extensively throughout Latin America and lived in Brazil for over a decade. Welcome to Background Briefing, James Green. Great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, and the former leader of Brazil, who has been sort of railroaded and in prison and is now out, is challenging Bolsonaro. He hasn't announced he's running in 2022, but it's pretty clear that he is. And he said that Bolsonaro has turned Brazil into a global pariah and refers to Bolsonaro 
as a psychopath. I heard some audio a couple of days ago of the a meeting in the or the the inquiry in the Brazilian Senate where they had the health minister on trial in effect. The senators were grilling him, and he's a former general, obviously a complete ignoramus, and it was pretty <laughs> passionate and pretty loud. So are things changing now in Brazil? You know, the country suffered so much under COVID. It's the second worst death toll after the United States, 450,000 dead, and 16 million Brazilians are, are infected. So give us an update, if you will, James. So you're referring to Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who was the two-time president of Brazil, a former trade union leader. And he was uh, charged with alleged corruption, sentenced to prison, was not allowed to run in the last elections. Because of that, served 580 days. And now the Supreme Court has ruled that the sentencing was all improper, the whole procedure was improper. And in fact, the judge who oversaw the case um, was inappropriate in his rulings. This is a judge who later went on to be the Minister of Justice. So Lula has, since he uh, was released from jail and gave a series of speeches, has really become the front runner in the elections. And in fact, he actually has indicated to a French media that he is planning to run for president. He spent the last uh, month and a half talking to politicians across the political uh, spectrum and is building a very strong coalition against Bolsonaro. And in fact, in the most latest polls, he beats out Bolsonaro 45 to 37. Um, Brazil has a, a system whereby the two top candidates uh, go for a runoff of none of them, if neither of them gets a majority in the first round of the elections. And so it's very likely that the elections are going to be Bolsonaro against Lula. And it looks like at this point, a year and a half before the elections happen, that Lula will win. Well, uh, there's a poll from Data Fola, which was published on Wednesday in Brazil that mm-hmm. has Lula defeating Bolsonaro by 55% to 32% in the runoff vote in the 2020 right. elections. So, right. Um, I'm, I'm re- I was referring to another uh, poll that came after that, and, of course, the polls are going to be somewhat different, but the, the, the margin is the same. It's a very significant difference between the two candidates, and Lula's clearly the front runner at this moment. So given Bolsonaro is something of a thug and an ignoramus and in many ways his handling of COVID has been reminiscent of Donald Trump's but since he has close ties to the military and seems to be corrupt and ruthless is he likely to pull something off if the writing's on the wall that he's going to lose and there's quite a bit of time before the election do you expect any mischief? Well, it is a year and a half off, and I teach Brazilian history, and I know that anything can happen, so it's very hard to predict anything at this point about what might be the outcome of the October 22 elections. But uh, Bolsonaro certainly will try to rely on the military. He has more people in government positions uh, than existed in the height of the military regime that ruled the country from 64 to to 85. And so he is um, very closely connected to sectors of the military. You pointed out in this uh, Senate uh, congressional investigation on COVID-19 that the former minister of health, who was a former general, is looking really bad. And I think the military is very concerned on one hand that their image is being uh, ruined by the Bolsonaro government, uh, that popular support is uh, eroding. And though there is a theoretical possibility that they might 
back him in some kind of military coup or adventure. I think significantly uh, Bolsonaro has lost widespread support among all social classes and in the most important parts of the country. And the third alternative, in other words, a center-right political alternative is quickly eroding. And to give you an example, the former president, Fernando Enrique Cardozo, who was a center-right president um, in two terms, just met with Lula and said that um, although he would support a center-right candidate in the first rounds of the elections, if it was between Lula and Bolsonaro, he would support Lula. This was not his position four years ago, or excuse me, two years ago, um, when he did, he voted. Uh, he didn't abstain in the second round of the elections, and so even the traditional center right is realizing that the writing is on the wall. That there's going to be two alternatives. It's going to either be Bolsonaro or Lula in 2022. So, in an interview that Lula did for the Guardian, I mean, it's an extraordinary story. This man. I mean, he started as a shoeshine boy, then became a union leader, and then was president again, uh, as you mentioned, from 2003 to 2011. He'll be 77 years old, and he sort of told the Guardian <laughs> that, you know, with Biden being elected at 78 years, well, I'm a boy compared to Biden, so perhaps I'll be all right. So give us a sense of who this man is, if you will, James. So Lula is extremely charismatic. He comes from um, the northeastern part of Brazil, which historically has been considered marginalized or less important than the southeastern part of the country, which was the industrial powerhouse of Brazil. And um, he fights against and has a lot of sympathy because of his origins uh, in the popular classes, a very poor family uh, who migrated from the northeast to to Sao Paulo to survive. Um, He's a very, very shrewd politician who knows how to negotiate and to build coalitions and negotiate deals with people. That's coming from his trade union experience, which was very pragmatic when he sat across the table from the multinational corporations, the automobile industry, the Fords and the General Motors and the uh, European motor companies uh, and was very successful in many contract negotiations. And I think he's managing to convince more and more people that he is the person who can really pull the, the country together against, um, against Bolsonaro. Much like Biden convinced large sectors of the Democratic Party during the primaries two years ago that he was actually the person that could actually beat Donald Trump. And I think that's the tendency right now. That's what we're seeing at this very moment. Uh, Brazilians, progressive Brazilians, have gone through two horrible years with Bolsonaro, attacks on unions, attacks on universities, attacks on LGBT, people of color, indigenous peoples. And the COVID on top of that has just really caused, I would say, a general depression in the country. And Lula has actually lifted people's spirits in the last month and a half. Um, Another very interesting development tomorrow, excuse me, on Monday, Jean Willis, who was an openly gay uh, uh, congressperson from Rio de Janeiro, very popular, who confronted Bolsonaro during the impeachment of former President Jomo Hosefi. He's just announced that he's leaving the party that he was a member of for many years the Party of Socialism and Liberty, to join the Workers' Party, to affiliate on Monday, and represents, again, another effort to bring forces together. John Willis is in exile in Europe, in, in Spain, in Barcelona, and so he's going to be affiliating with the Workers' Party on Monday as a way of showing kind of this united front that is developing against Bolsonaro. And I think progressive forces in Brazil are pretty optimistic about the possibilities of there really being a shift in the future. And for many of them, the victory of Biden 
even though they have a lot of reservations about the United States, was something very uh, important to realize that maybe the same could happen in Brazil. So what will this mean for leftist politics in South America? I mean, it's almost as though, you know, the Brazilian people have learned the lesson the hard way, having voted for this right-wing guy in the absence of any other real choice since Lula was disqualified in this sort of rigged way. What's happening in Colombia is pretty horrific, given this right-wing government made these massive tax cuts for the rich and the people are now rising up. How do you see this playing out in the, in the continent? Yeah, we can also look at the recent elections in Chile uh, for the con- Constitutional Assembly to write a new constitution, which is going to basically rewrite the, the Chilean constitution, uh, which was one uh, written during the Pinochet dictatorship. So that's another very interesting phenomenon. The fact that a communist was elected to the mayor of the city of Santiago is also very significant. So I think what we're seeing is a shift back again to the left through sectors of Latin America against the far-right neoliberal economic policies and political policies of certain conservative governments. It's important to keep in mind that Lula is not a revolutionary nor a committed socialist. He's a social democrat who believes that the state should play a more positive role in trying to address the most immediate problems of the country and carry out some kind of equitable economic uh, distribution of the wealth. But he's not a radical but I think he marks kind of a shift to the possibilities of returning to normalcy, to turn towards decency and democracy and to civility, whereas Bolsonaro represents the same ways that Trump has in the United States, the kind of aggression and polarization that has really deteriorated the, 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 the United States ethos. Uh, it's important to keep in mind, however, that the right wing, as in the United States with the Republicans, the right wing in Brazil is still going to exist and it's going to be there polarizing the situation with the threat of a military intervention, with the discourse of the far right and all of the things that accompany that. So like the United States, Brazil is going to have to live with this um, cancerous part of the body politic uh, in the future, even though Lula is elected. And in terms of Lula's statement in his interview with, with The Guardian that Brazil is a global pariah, he went on to say that you know, Bolsonaro embraced Trump and alienated so many world leaders, including President Macron of France, German Chancellor Angela Merkel, Chinese leader Xi Jinping, and Joe Biden, whose victory Bolsonaro took 38 days to recognize. So it seems like, well, let me ask you, are the Brazilian people concerned about how the rest of the world sees them and how how, uh, Bolsonaro has tainted their image? Well, so, of course, there is a core that supported Bolsonaro that will continue to support him after uh, his defeat, if he is defeated, much like Trump has loyal supporters regardless. But I think people are much very aware of that, that Brazil has been very tarnished by Bolsonaro's image. The former chancellor, um, the head of the Ministry of Foreign Relations, was recently removed from office because he had been such a bad diplomat for Brazil that the country was unable to negotiate Uh, contracts with countries that were willing to sell vaccines for COVID-19. So China, even Pfizer, which was desperately trying to offer Brazil the vaccine, the government ignored it and relied more on hydrochloroquine and uh, dismissing the use of masks and um, not providing oxygen for the city of Manaus and the Amazon where thousands of people died because there was not enough oxygen in the hospitals for people who had 
uh, needed intubation and were, were dying of respiratory problems. So I think people understand, uh, at least a, a growing majority of people understand that, that Bolsonaro is not good for the country, that Brazil is more and more isolated, is seen as a pariah, um, and, and in, that reg- in that regard, um, I think uh, they realize that he's got to go. And I think they see Lula because Lula, when he was president, was very, very active on the world stage. He uh, participated very actively in the G20. He charmed world leaders. He made many gestures towards Africa and to Asia. He helped align the global south against some of the powers in the global north. And so I think they also realized that he could be the kind of person that could reactivate Brazil's international standing. And of course, Lula will stop the plundering of the Brazilian rainforests, the lungs of the earth, uh, which have been assaulted in an accelerated way under Bolsonaro. But unfortunately, of course, Bolsonaro's got a year and a half left to do more damage. So at least right. I guess... So, so this is very important. Um, the Workers' Party has had a contradiction in that. It was built on an idea of economic developmentalism in Brazil, which in the past sometimes has prioritized developing large projects that could help, for, for example, supply energy, electrical energy through water power, uh, hydroelectric power to the country. But I think there's been a real international shift, and I think the opposition to Bolsonaro sees this, and I think Lula is understanding this, and so I think there will be even a shift in the understanding about the environment. Uh, although it must be said that the deforestation of the Amazon dropped significantly uh, during the period that that Lula and Jim Mousafi were in power, and it's expected that they will return to the kind of environmental policies that will be in accord with international standards, uh, trying to police the Amazon to prevent the illegal uh, exportation of wood. In fact, the Minister of the Environment is currently under investigation for having been involved in illicit trading of uh, lumber to the United States. And in fact, the United States denounced him and, and sent that information on to Brazil saying, uh, that the Ministry of the Environment was probably colluding with, with exporters, illegally exporting land. Many serious problems that, that, that Brazil faces right now. And I'm predicting that there's going to be a large democratic coalition of the traditional force of the Workers' Party, that is labor and poor and working class people, but with the new social movements, the LGBTQ movement, the black movement, which is becoming increasingly important in denouncing racism in Brazil, the environmental movement, and the indigenous movement. And indigenous people, especially indigenous women, are taking a very important leadership role in the anti-deforestation movement. Uh, And I think these forces are going to be a part of this large coalition to defeat Bolsonaro. There's a lot of unity around that. And this, I think, hopefully will reflect in improved policies by the Workers' Party government if it does, in fact, come to power in 2023. Well, James Green, I thank you so much for joining us here today. My pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with James Green, who's the Carlos Manuel de Suspides Professor of Modern Latin American History and Portuguese and Brazilian Studies, as well as the past president of the Brazil Studies Association, and he has traveled extensively throughout Latin America and lived in Brazil for over a decade. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how, since progress and catastrophe are two sides of the same coin, the combination of the climate crisis and nuclear risks present humanity with a choice between radical reinvention of the world or its destruction.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Shishko Horvat, who is a philosopher and author who has published more than 10 books translated into 15 languages, including poetry from the future, What Does Europe Want? and Welcome to the Desert of Post-Socialism and the Radicality of Love. He's the co-founder of the Democracy in Europe Movement 2025 and a council member of the Progressive International, and his latest book is After the Apocalypse. Welcome to Background Briefing, Shreshko Horvat. Hello, and I'm really glad to be talking to you and your listeners today. Well, thanks for joining us. and. I obviously want to talk about your book and all that you've brought to the table here in terms of the future of mankind, the future of the planet, and uh, you wrote your book, and then just as you're about to have it published, uh, the COVID pandemic happened, so you had to go back and rewrite it. But before we get to the apocalypse here in the United States, we have a major threat against American democracy itself. We saw a manifestation of that on the assault on the Capitol on January the 6th. And now we're heading into an election. A recent poll in the United States found, a survey found that a majority of Republicans agree with the statement that the traditional American way of life is disappearing so fast that we may have to use force to save it. And given that the Republicans plan to cheat and win the election in 2022 and take over the House and Senate by cheating, by suppressing votes and by gerrymandering, etc. And they're quite naked about it. And so you'll have a situation where you'll have an election where the Republicans will decide, not the people at the polls, but the Republicans will just simply declare themselves winners. And there's likely to be a massive backlash. So... Here we are in the United States in the process of heading towards a kind of pseudo-democracy that you have in Hungary and uh, Turkey and even in Russia itself. So I'm wondering how we could even get to the addressing the issues that are so pressing in your book about saving the planet and saving mankind from itself if our government itself is going to be paralyzed and and even in a form of civil war. So that's my f initial concern. Does this resonate with you? Uh, unfortunately, yes, because uh, here over the pond, to say so, here in Europe, uh, the situation is also worrying. I mean, democracy is dying out everywhere. You have authoritarian states, as you mentioned already, from Hungary, Poland, uh, to many others, and you could have seen it also with handling the COVID-19 crisis and in which ways uh, this kind of biopolitics surveillance state or what some authors would call surveillance capitalism is actually uh, uh, developing even further, even deeper, colonizing uh, daily lives. Uh, and uh, what I would say, having in mind what is currently happening in the United States, but also in a all other places in the world, is that uh, we are not just simply living after the apocalypse, uh, which is the name of uh, my most recent book, but we are also living after the end of history. Uh, you know, probably in the United States, people will still remember this famous thesis by Francis Fukuyama, uh, that uh, we reached the end of history and that liberal democracy uh, is the only winner in town, uh, which means that uh, all societies are... Uh, 
so to say, uh, naturally progressing towards more democracy, towards liberal democracy, uh, and so on. But what you could have seen uh, in the last years, and uh, especially after the last financial crisis, 2007-2008, uh, is that uh, ideology is back. Uh, from all sides. Uh, I mean, now you have the alt-right ideology, uh, but you have also all sorts of apocalyptic movements, uh, uh, whether it is the libertarian movements from Silicon Valley, uh, who are already buying, uh, uh, you know, shelters uh, in New Zealand or dreaming these wet dreams of creating multiplanetary lives so they will save their asses uh, and go to Mars. Uh, but you have also this kind of radicalization of politics uh, uh, in which uh, classical traditional democracy, even electoral democracy, uh, is not here anymore. Uh, so unlike uh, Francis Fukuyama, what we have today is actually uh, the death of the end of history itself. We have the death of liberal democracy itself, and I would say that it was precisely liberal democracy itself uh, which has led to this situation today uh, with uh, austerity measures, indebtment, privatizations and so on. They actually created the fertile ground uh, for this uh, class struggle which is now occurring uh, not only in the United States but everywhere in the world. Of course, your question is, you know, how to deal with bigger threats uh, uh, and how to deal with bigger threats if we are still confined in the trap of nation states. Uh, because I don't think that particular nation states, whether it's uh, United States or Russia or France or Germany or whichever state, uh, can alone face and deal with the current crisis which we have, which is on the one hand the climate crisis and on the other hand it is the pending nuclear threat, uh, which is higher than ever actually. Uh, so the real question is how do we go beyond this, I would say, anachronistic nation-state model? Uh, how do we reform or co completely re-innovate uh, major world institutions uh, which are not really doing their role? Uh, because what we face today is not just one lunatic in power in one particular country, uh, it is the end of the world itself. So it is not something which United States alone can solve, which China can solve, but actually, as unpopular that might sound, China and the United States and Russia as well and other countries should come together and start solving this major crisis that humanity is, is facing. Because in 100 or 200 years, we might, look nost we might be nostalgic toward the, towards the times uh, in which we are living today. So, is it possible then that we could have a global sort of awakening of consciousness of all the peoples of the world recognizing that they're in lifeboat Earth together and the lifeboat is sinking? So, as your book makes clear that the climate crisis and nuclear risks present humanity with a choice between radical reinvention of our way of life or the end of the world, eradication. So those are the stark choices. Yeah, let me let me try uh, to pose you a test question uh, and to you and maybe those who are listening to us, uh, whether you know what A74 stands for. A74. I mean, it's, it's, it's a rhetorical question because I also didn't know a few days ago. Uh, so apparently that's the name of the biggest 
Antarctic iceberg uh, that is currently drifting uh, uh, and uh, will probably be drifting for the next two years. Uh, it is uh, 40 times the size of Paris and 73 times the size of Manhattan. But I doubt that this is something which we will read every day in the newspapers. I doubt that even when people hear this uh, crazy news that there is an iceberg 73 times uh, bigger than Manhattan, which will stay here for two years and then it will melt and then it will radically change also uh, uh, the climate uh, of our very near future. I doubt that people actually can really understand it, me including. Uh, that's why in After the Apocalypse, uh, I use this term, which I borrowed from the German philosopher Günther Anders, uh, which is uh, called supraliminal. Uh, you know, uh, usually when we speak about media propaganda uh, and uh, corporations trying to convince us to buy a new product, uh, we use the t term subliminal, uh, which means that it is happening on a level uh, which is much lower than our consciousness can perceive. Uh, so someone is actually fucking with us and then the, in the end we go to the supermarket and we buy a product without even knowing why did we buy it, but, but we bought it because we saw uh, it on television, for instance. Uh, but the term supraliminal means that something is so big uh, that we cannot perceive it anymore, that we cannot comprehend it anymore. And I would say this A74, this iceberg, is one perfect recent example. It is so big that it becomes supraliminal, that we have something what I call also, again, borrowing from Günther Anders, what I call apocalyptic blindness, that we become blind towards the apocalypse. Uh, and I think climate crisis is one of these examples. And the other example is, of course, the nuclear threat, uh, because, it, because it's very difficult even if we saw the bombs uh, which were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it is very difficult to understand what was happening for decades in the Pacific, uh, in the Marshall Islands, for, for instance, with all the nuclear tests by the United States. And it's very difficult to really understand what kind of consequences, if we know that uh, radioactive decontamination can last for thousands of years, what kind of consequences this will have for the future. Uh, so the most important question is how do we deal with something what is supraliminal? Uh, how do we become not only aware of the ap apocalypse, but how do we actually act today if these threats are just multiplying and we have multiple threats at the same time? Uh, I wouldn't say the situation as dark as it might sound, uh, that the situation is so bad because I think uh, the current pandemic uh, didn't just serve as an accelerator of uh, very bad things, including surveillance, capitalism and biopolitics. But at the same time, COVID-19 served as, as a sort of X-ray machine, as a sort of uh, revelation in the original uh, meaning of the term uh, apocalypse, which uh, originally in Greek means uncovering, unveiling something. So the COVID-19 crisis, I think, unveiled the utter incompetence of uh, uh, nation states, the utter incompetence of governments. It also revealed in which way the rich only got richer, especially Amazon, Elon Musk and so on. Uh, but at the same time, it also brought people together. I mean, it is, it is sufficient uh, to look at the United States. It wasn't just Capitol Hill uh, as this kind of uh, international performance act, uh, which is reminding me of the 1920s and the Weimar Republic, but it was at the same time the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, look what's happening uh, in Colombia uh, these days. Look what's happening in Palestine. I would say that at this moment uh, you have uh, really a major planetary awareness 
about what is happening to, to the poor Palestinians. And you have so many solidarity marches, protests all around the world, even if many people are still confined or unvaccinated uh, or living in a kind of uh, constant state of exception. So I would say that people are aware uh, uh, and, uh, you know, you don't have to tell to someone in Bangladesh or on the Marshall Islands that climate crisis is real. Uh, they are affected by it every day. But what we have today, and this is the unprecedented task of our generations, and we are the future generations, you know, the movements in the 70s were talking about, we are the future generations. Who knows how many generations will still come? And we have this unprecedented task uh, to not only become aware of this uh, multiple planetary uh, eschatological or existential threats, but we have the duty and responsibility to act. And I think it's impossible, of course, we have to act on the local level, but it's impossible to really encounter these planetary threats unless uh, we internationalize them, because they are already internationalized, unless we go beyond the very concept of nation state, unless uh, we have a new international planetary movement, which would, which would go even beyond the very term international, because that still means internations, you know. What we need is to go beyond the nations, uh, because, you know, in 100 or 200 years, uh, uh, it won't really matter whether you are from Bangladesh, from the United States, from Zagreb, or I don't know where, uh, because the sea levels will already be rising, uh, and all these threats which we are seeing these days, you know, from earthquakes uh, to rising sea levels to uh, locust swarms to new pandemics and so on, this is really becoming our new normal. So, Shreka, when you talk about the Marshall Islands, you are combining, of course, the two threats, the nuclear, emerging nuclear threat or the continuing nuclear threat and the threat of global warming with the oceans rising on these Pacific Islands where so much nuclear waste is because of the 1950s tests. You've got the Japanese now uh, releasing uh, tons and tons of radioactive water into the ocean. So the nuclear threat, in a way, is somewhat deceptive because we have the worst of both worlds we have psychological disarmament but not but not physical disarmament from the cold war between the soviet union and the united states they still have thousands of nuclear weapons each what concerns me is that in russia itself it's possible that right-wing hardline nationalists could take over from Putin, like uh, Nikolai Petrushev, who's, who's the the hawkish head of the National Security Council, who's challenging Putin from the right. So you have a combination of the worst of both worlds. You have national security and organized crime. You have the mafia and nuclear weapons. So does that concern you, or do you accept that that notion? I mean, most people think that the most likely nuclear war would be between India and Pakistan, but I'm worried about the security of nuclear weapons in general, particularly in, in Russia. Yeah, I must say I'm also worried about uh, the state of security of nuclear weapons in the United States. Uh, you know, didn't uh, those guys who stormed the Capitol kill get very close, you know, to provoke uh, a nuclear war. Uh, and did something similar happened, I think it was a few years ago, uh, when there there was this, you will probably remember, uh, fake alarm that a nuclear missile was going towards Hawaii. And then, you know, at the same time, CIA was tweeting about pandas and Trump was playing golf. 
but someone could have misinterpreted or interpreted it right because there was an alert and actually a nuclear war could have happened. Uh, so, of course, I'm worried about that. But what I try to show in my book uh, after the apocalypse is that uh, we should be also very worried about other aspects of uh, the so-called nuclear threat. Uh, so uh, what worries me so much is not just simply nuclear weapons. Uh, of course, the situation is very bad. And it's not just United States, Russia, Pakistan, India. There are other players as well. Uh, but what worries me as well is also the use of uh, nuclear power uh, for different sorts of testings. Uh, you mentioned, we mentioned already the Marshall Islands. Uh, the Marshall Islands uh, is a place uh, in this part of the universe, uh, which over a period, over 12 years, uh, uh, more than one Hiroshima-sized explosion happened per day. So can you imagine a Hiroshima per day, 12 years? Uh, and of course, the United States left. Uh, the, the nuclear waste was, uh, was not really managed as it was supposed to. Then climate crisis hits, uh, sea levels are rising, and you already have something what philosophically we could call a sort of new ontology, you know, that the very being of reality is changing because you have a combination of climate crisis and existing uh, nuclear decontamination. Uh, uh, what happened, for instance, these days in Fukushima is also uh, very worrying that, you know, the Japanese government decided uh, to dump uh, the contaminated uh, water into the Pacific. And they've been doing this already. So what I'm saying is you don't really need a nuclear war. You know, this is maybe Hollywood imagination that there will be a nuclear war or aliens and there will be a big, major catastrophic event. And then after that, we will reach extinction. Uh, what I'm saying is that uh, we, we are constantly in the process of extinction. And not only in the sense of all these species dying out and going extinct, uh, but also of our reality ontology uh, changing radically, transforming radically uh, into a process which is ongoing, which might be a slow decay, uh, which will of course be accompanied by civil wars, by uh, destruction by maybe going back to some sort of uh, tribes or whatever, which you can see in science fiction today as well. Uh, what I'm really worried at is that there is no real difference between nuclear weapons and nuclear energy. Uh, that as soon as you uh, invented the atomic bomb, uh, this is a knowledge uh, which we cannot unlearn anymore. And this is a knowledge which we are still using all across the world, uh, although there are other means of energy, although there are other sources of energy which are uh, much safer given the climate crisis, which is leading to rising sea levels, uh, which is uh, leading to stronger storms, which can then affect nuclear power plants and so on. Uh, my point was that besides this, also the nuclear tests are still ongoing, and these are not tests at all. Uh, these are events which are already leaving a mark on, on planet Earth. And of course, the other twin concurrent catastrophe in a way is the very notion that progress and catastrophe are two sides of the same coin. So capitalism itself depends upon growth, upon quarterly growth reports so it's by nature extractive and there's a limit to what the earth can endure so one of the things that happened during this covid pandemic was the fact that we weren't commuting so much we weren't stuck on the freeways 
poisoning the air, crawling along, going to work and coming back from work. People have now discovered that they can work from home. And there was a, a significant drop in global CO2 emissions in this last year as a result of COVID. So it's in a way, the lessons are being presented to us, aren't, aren't they? Uh, of course, uh, but I'm afraid that people will easily forget. And I'm also f uh, afraid that these short moments uh, when, you know, the cities were calm and uh, there was not so much air traffic and uh, uh, ships, uh, uh, which are usually transporting the products uh, globally, that they were also still for a moment, uh, that, that will be distant uh, past very soon. Uh, although what you could have seen is that a simple virus or, I mean, remember Evergreen, uh, that ship which was stuck in the Suez Canal, you know, a ship going stuck in the Suez Canal can actually uh, uh, contribute uh, uh, to less CO2 in the atmosphere. Uh, maybe that's uh, uh, an instructive example uh, how only in a few days, uh, if global transport uh, goes to a halt, uh, or stops for a sudden moment, in which way that can actually contribute uh, uh, to, to the planet itself. Uh, now, of course, this is very complicated because uh, more than 90% of uh, global transport still depends on, on ships uh, which are, you know, uh, floating around the oceans. Uh, but that's another reason why we should go thinking in the direction of uh, radically transforming uh, in the way extractive capitalism functions getting rid of this extractive uh, uh, capitalism, which is based on extracting more resources, more values. And you mentioned that we are now working from home. You know, what worries me is not just that this system, which is based on this illusion of progress, illusion of growth, uh, uh, because growth, this kind of growth is nothing else but actually a pre-programmed self-destruction, I would say. Uh, but that this system now is not only extracting resources anymore, uh, from 